Welcome to TNS, the new school at Commonweal, a collaborative learning project exploring nature, culture, and consciousness. Join us now for a conversation with TNS host Erwin Keller and musician, teacher, and activist Holly Neer. So, there is nobody in this room, Holly, that doesn't know you in some way. Uh, we know your great big voice. Um, we know your challenging lyrics. Um, your music that defined a generation of political and social activism. As we all know, Holly Neer has been an activist for her entire life and a musician for her entire life. She was singing protest music in high school up in Potter Valley. When she was only 21, she was part of the Free the Army tour with Jane Fonda and Donald Sutherland. Wow. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's, it's so cool. I know, it's so cool. <sighs> Um, I don't know if this is, well, um, I think a pivotal moment um, was uh, the Kent State Massacre, which brought, which, which brought Holly to write It Could Have Been Me, which I think is a song that is very central in a lot of our hearts. Um, and that this really launched her long career of social change, songwriting, and performance a world that she continues to inhabit. She's brought her talent and creativity as a performer and songwriter to bear on so many of the social struggles that we have witnessed in our lifetimes here in the U.S., in South America, in Southeast Asia. She's been a voice of the feminist movement and the lesbian feminist movement and the anti-war movement and so many places where people lift up their voices. She was the founder of Redwood Records, created to support politically conscious artists from around the world. She was named Woman of the Year in 1985 by Ms. Magazine. <laughs> She's been working for over 40 years and has 30 recordings, and her work has affected every person in the world, in the world, every person in this room, and I hope every person in the world. Let's please welcome Holly Neer. Ah, I'm so nervous. <laughs> I'm so nervous because you are such a hero to me mm. for the great majority of my life. And I'm going to indulge in telling you just a little bit about that so you understand why I'm so jittery. Um, when I was uh, a college student, in, I was studying in Jerusalem, in Israel, and I was just in the process of considering coming out. And... I was living in a world where uh, so much of my life was about hints and secrets. And somebody gave me a mixtape mix of Holly Nair, and I think it's a mix of like your first three albums. And those songs came to mark what I was going through at that time in such a deep way, because I was listening to it incessantly, incessantly. And um, in preparing for tonight, I went back and started listening to some of, some of the recordings I hadn't listened to in years. Your later things sort of stayed with me, but the early stuff I went back to listen to, and it brought me to such a place of remembering that critical moment. Um, songs where um, there was just a, 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 hint of, um, a hint of being able to live a different kind of life, and a hint at being able to have a different kind of outlook than I grew up with. Um, that you were giving 
that um, resonated with me so fully mm. and has stayed with me and became sort of part of my DNA as an activist, as a queer person, um, as, uh, as a person who looks critically at the world around me. And I suspect there is something similar for a lot of people in the room. And I'd actually like to ask, raise your hand if there is a Holly Near song that, that um, is intrinsically connected with a certain moment in your life. <laughs> oh, my. <laughs> okay, what are some of the titles? Just shout them out. What, what songs? Why do we kill people? Got me Sky Dancing. Got me Sky Dancing. <laughs> we are gentle, angry people. Yes. Mm -hmm. Definitely. How delightful. <laughs> so you've been the soundtrack of a generation of people who want to make change in the world. Hmm. So I want to talk about that. I want to talk about your songwriting. I want to talk about what you've been up to lately and get your views on what's going on now. So first of all, welcome. Hello. Hello. Thank you. That was really fun to hear those songs called out. I probably only remember one or two of them. <laughs> yeah, they're a while back. I imagine yeah. that we could sing them all back to you word for word. That, that would be fun. If the conversation lags, we'll move on to that. <laughs> um, I uh, also, uh, I've met Holly one time before. Um, we happened, the Kinsey Six, my group, happened to be performing at an event where Holly was receiving an award. So here is, here's what I looked like last oh time you saw goodness. me. <laughs> wow. Should we pass this around? Sure, pass it around. And I know that was probably one of I many, many. I thought of myself as a tall person. <laughs> But, Weeks. but there's a lot of hair here, yeah. And it was at a time when I didn't have any, so that's fun. Thank you for bringing that up. Sure, sure. I was wondering if we might actually start with a little bit of prehistory, because people were excited when I mentioned the FTA tour, and I think that's a, a piece of your story that, that people might not have. And maybe you could tell us a little bit about the Free the Army tour and, and what that how that launched you, how that launched your thinking and your performance. I love talking about that trip. Um, I came from a progressive family, even though we lived out on a little farm ranch in Potter Valley and progressive was the minority out there. Um, my, my parents um, got the IF Stone Weekly, it kind of came in the mailbox <laughs> and, and they would talk with each other over coffee in the morning, each one taking a side, not right and left, but left and lefter. And, uh, <laughs> you know, pacifism versus armed struggle and that sort of thing. And so I was a kid that grew up knowing who the Rosenbergs were. I grew up with music in our living room that included um, all the great jazz artists, the... Um, the two most famous black people in folk music, Harry Belafonte and Odetta. Um, my education about the world came through those records, and I don't know exactly how they got the catalogs, but they got catalogs and ordered music out of these catalogs, and they would arrive in our mailbox, and my dad made a special mailbox big enough to hold a 12 by 12 <laughs> record so that they could arrive. And that, being so isolated out there, there was two things that were really 
helpful. One was because uh, we grew up with uh, Pomo Indians, Italian winemakers, Portuguese chicken egg uh, farmers. Um, there was a kind of very small diversity out in Potter Valley, um, working class kids whose parents worked in the mills. And um, my dad really enjoyed going down to the bar on weekends and, and drinking. But part of that experience for him was sitting, you know, by the time everybody had had a fair amount to drink, he would say something like, well, I don't know, I think I wouldn't mind if my daughter married a black person. And then all hell would, <laughs> would break loose. And he enjoyed it so much. So that's kind of the family mess that was going on. Um, and then I, I feel as if those records taught me about the world I was going to go out and be a part of, so that when I hit the ground running after high school, it wasn't like being startled with completely new information, even though we lived in that kind of rural isolation. And um, so I went to UCLA um, in the theater arts department. I, uh, got seen in an audition by um, an agent who immediately got me jobs in films. And I left college after one year and did film and television. And in the process of that is how um, a choreographer said to me, I understand that they've just lost somebody from the cast of this show called FTA that Jane Fonda is doing, and they're holding auditions, and maybe you'd like to go. And it was just like that. And I showed up. And they immediately put me to work. It wasn't really an audition. They were making flyers and running out to buy long underwear and getting passports and inoculations and getting ready to leave to go on this trip. And around 4 o'clock in the afternoon said, OK, let's see. Now, can you sing? <laughs> and uh, I did a little scene, a little dance, a little singing. And um, if I do say so myself, blew them all out of the water because <laughs> I, I didn't look like the like I could. So, um, <laughs> what, what, is that, what does that mean? I don't know. I had really long hair. I looked kind of um, young and Pollyanna. I didn't look like somebody who was going to sign up on a tour to go to the Pacific to protest the U.S. military. So, that, um, that might have been one of your best qualifications. I think it was. Girl next door against <laughs> I was the war. Girl next door. <laughs> So within week, a week off, off we went. We went to New York to do a big fundraiser at the Philharmonic with Nina Simone, and then off we went to the Pacific, to Japan, Okinawa, Hawaii, uh, the Philippines. Yep. And it was there that um, I started to learn words like military-industrial complex. I didn't know what that was. Um, I had fill up philosophy in my life, but I didn't have a lot of specifics. And we would meet with people, say, in Hawaii, we would meet with soldiers who were resisting war and racism from within the military. We would meet with locals, for example, the Hawaiian women, because um, men would be promised for their R&R. &R, they'd go to Hawaii. The Hawaiian women would wait, be waiting for them with loving arms. That didn't happen. So then there was a lot of rape of Hawaiian women. Hawaiian brothers and, uh, and husbands and friends and fathers got angry, beat up the soldiers. It was a real huge military-based problem that then continued on in every country we went. So there was this incredible education that happened on this three-week tour. Like in the Philippines, a woman 
was talking about how she had been a farm family in the Philippines. The military put a base down on the farmland where she was living. Her family, they all had to move to the city to make a living. She had no skills. She became a prostitute to support her family. So she would go to the docks and pick up a sailor, um, have sex with him, take his money, tell him about the GI movement, which was a soldier movement to try to um, stop the occupation of various countries and to stop making war against people. And she would give half the money to um, uh, the Filipino revolutionary organization she was part of and half to her family. And it was there, I thought, my God, you can organize anywhere. You know, it was just astounding to me to see the power and the strength of this woman. So they were meeting people like that in all these different countries that just put my learning curve on, on high speed. I, I was... How ins- old were you when you were, when the, you were experiencing this? 20, 21, maybe. That's a lot of learning. It was a lot of learning in three weeks. I mean, it was just like 1971. Yeah. And if you want to learn more about the soldier movement, which has been completely wiped out of the historical knowledge uh, in this country, there are two films. One is called uh, The FTA Show, which was a film that Jane produced with various people who... um, it played in New York at a couple theaters when it opened, and then it disappeared. The theaters were threatened to not do it, and Nixon made sure that film did not get played. So it was reissued and re-released a few years ago, and um, there's a, another film that's really a good companion piece with it called Sir, No Sir, which is about the resistance within the military, soldiers who finally said, no more. We're not going to do this. And there were a lot of soldiers who were put in stockades. I think, I don't think I'm exaggerating this. I think there might have been as many as 12,000 soldiers that were put in stockades for their resistance. Um, There were people who were threatened with court-martials. There was the rising of of the the Black Panthers was going on. There was a big... uh, anti-racism movement coming from black soldiers within the military. And it was the beginning of the women's movement. So there was a rising of the women who were in the military who went over thinking that they were officers and or nurses, you know, in the military and found that they were there to for the pleasure of, of the officers, the men in the military. So all of this happened. All this is going on. And, and where were you able to perform? Were you, were try- you were trying to perform on bases. Or near bases. We couldn't get. We didn't perform on bases. We performed off bases. And how were the, we had how, advan- were the, how were the soldiers able to get to you? Well, they we had advanced people who flyered all over the place. So when we got there, it had been advertised. But sometimes the leadership in the military would put out a different flyer saying it was in a different place than what it was. Um, and when we were in the Philippines, the the ship Constellation was coming in, and they kept the men on the ship for three or four extra days so they couldn't get off and come to the show. So they understood how dangerous we were. I'm not sure I understood how dangerous we were. I was just learning that. And I also didn't quite understand what martial law was, which was what was going on in the Philippines um, at the time. But for some reason, and I really do think it's because Jane was a movie star, people could not figure out how someone as beautiful and as sexy as she was could be as smart and as 
militant as she was. It was it confused people a lot. So her stardom got us through a lot of doors. And in the Philippines, we actually had to go have, um, she had to go and have dinner with the, the Marcos family, the dictator, in order to have our visas approved. And so she said, you're coming with me. And I think because I was the Pollyanna one. And so we went, <laughs> we went to dinner with the Marcos family. Um, but I think that we would go to a field that had been identified. There were a lot of local organizers who made this happen. And we would go to the field. There were eight cast members and four crew, uh, camera crew. So we, um, and I guess two sound people. So we would put up, we would build the set. We had all the parts. We'd build the platform and, and set up all the sound. There were... Um, Four men and four women. This is in 1971. Four men and four women, four African-Americans and four European-Americans and one, what was his background? He was Jewish. He had a, um, I'm blanking out on the word how embarrassing in this particular house. Um, Um. When you practice very conservatively. Orthodox, thank you. Uh, Who was the piano player. So, uh, and we were there in December, so he was going, lighting the candles through Hanukkah. And um, so I was learning a lot. Uh, were you in danger? But, Did you feel yourself to be in danger? Um, yeah. At one place in Japan, um, first of all, you have to understand, thousands of soldiers came. Thousands and thousands of soldiers came. It was, these were big fields and big turnouts. Once they got redirected to come to where we were, there was a lot of people there. And um, we were like the opposite of the Bob Hope show. Yeah. <laughs> you know, it was, um, and they felt, whether or not they agreed with everything we said, because I don't think they did, sometimes we'd get booed or hooted at, but in general, they felt like we were listening, that we were telling some truth rather than this sort of fantasy type idea of what war is like, and, and we didn't have any women that paraded around with sexy clothes on or anything like that. So, But in, when we were in Japan, quite a few and, uh, pro-war soldiers, Marines, showed up, and they started to swarm the stage. And um, I thought at that, that point we might get hurt because, you know, Marines, <laughs> they're trained. Um, we were funny. We just sort of started singing. That was our great weapon, was you start singing, you know? Did it work? <laughs> um, no, what worked was when the, um, the Army and the Navy got up and stood between us and the Marines. Wow. wow. I got to tell you, that was a moment. That was really a moment. The pro-war um, soldiers against the anti-war soldiers. So, that's an amazing, that's an amazing and I could image. talk all evening about that trip. So I, we, I know there's other things we want to talk about, but that was like a so foundational. That was such a, I was going on a path of becoming doing film and television, and um, it just was impossible to return to that completely wholeheartedly. I did. I I went on and did more work, and I ended up doing hair on Broadway, and I did various things, but. Um, Boy, that, the voice of that trip would not leave my brain. A few years later, you performed in, you performed in Hanoi and visited Saigon. That was in 1970. When was the peace agreement signed? 75. 75? That was in 74. And uh, Jeff Langley, 
who many of you may know because he was the... Uh, at the arts department at Sonoma, and had been my pianist for the first 11 years. Uh, he and I went to Vietnam uh, together, invited by the Musicians' Union and, the, uh, and several theaters to come and talk with, with artists and then to see what was going on. What was that experience like? It was during wartime you were traveling to Vietnam. It um, was. Yeah, I've been to a lot of war zones. Um, we weren't anywhere where the bombs were dropping when we were actually there. It was like a, there was a pause or maybe it was happening in the countryside. I don't remember, but, um, it was coming towards the end and there was a lot of dysfunction in the U.S. military and in South Vietnam. It was all starting to crumble, um, because it was only a few months before the peace agreement was signed. So, but it was, um, I was an oddity for them. Again, I had long red hair and I was 5'7". And um, kids, dozens of kids would follow me around wherever I went and pull my braids and my hair. They <laughs> wanted to touch it, you know, see what it was like. Um, we did a concert in several towns. And this is just the spirit of those people. It was so amazing to me. A piano would show up out of nowhere at these various places, and piano isn't their instrument, but they had one or two in the country. So wherever we were, they made sure it got there. And during the bombing, the high school boys were usually assigned to the piano to lift it up and carry it down into a bomb shelter. They were given one symphonic orchestra in terms of the instruments by um, the Soviet Union. Um, they didn't waste anything, had nothing to waste. And they had a very interesting, um, they just thought culture was so powerful. But talking with the artists, they said it was a very sad time for them because they would never get to really do their art because during a war, which they had been at war with France and then with the United States and with China and with... They had to do a lot of agi-prop stuff. You know, they had to put up billboards on that were very rhetorical, that would just help people who are out in the rice fields and knowing they were going, that they were in, there were mines and bombs, you know, to say, keep going, we value your taking care of the country, you know, that kind of art. And plays that were all about, we can make it, we can make it, we can make it. And they never had the time to investigate the inner workings of a human being. Mm. And they knew from reading plays by people who could write in a non-war zone, that that was really the height of theater and the art, was that intimate personal investigation. But they knew they, they didn't have that. Mm. What kind of um, support and camaraderie did you have as you became more and more a songwriter of social change and political activism? Was it a lonely thing? Did you have a great, like, a great group of people that were cheering you on and encouraging you? Well, my family was encouraging. You know, I always feel that's a great relief. It takes a lot of energy to work with your family if they're opposing you. I've talked to several people in the last few days who have that experience around the election. It's very rough. So I had, I had support. Um, my dad was very, um, bless his heart. Uh, he was an alcoholic, but he was also an extremely smart 
creative man. But when he'd had too much to drink and I was on the phone with him, he was the kind of dad he would say, and I said, but you know, I'm going to the Philippines. I hear there's martial law there. I guess I could die. And he said, oh, you could get killed out on the street and get hit by a garbage truck. You know, you might, you know, you're all going to die sometime. You might as well go have a life, you know, go have a life. And I knew that he was intoxicated, but I also sort of believed in his philosophy that what the hell, you know, might as well be doing something. So, um, that kind of support was there. And then I got the gift that very few artists get to have, and that is I traveled with a star. Thousands of people came to hear Jane Fonda when we toured in the United States. It, at that time, it was Tom Hayden and Jane and myself and sometimes Ellsberg, um, sometimes various people who were doing uh, anti-war work. And I got to sing for all of these people. And that's how you found out about me. I mean, maybe not you personally, but that was really amazing. It would have taken years of singing to 10 people and 20 people and 30 people. But I went from that to having a, a very meaningful audience. So that was incredible support. At what point did you realize that songwriting was going to be your way, your path? I'd written a few songs in high school. Um, not very good songs, but I'd written some songs. Um, but it really was after the FDA tour. Because on that tour, I realized I didn't have any songs to sing. That all of the songs I knew that were anti-war songs really came from the point of view of men who were going to be drafted or were going to be in the military or who were resisting in, in a way that... Um, wasn't really my experience. I could be supportive of them, but they were the songs that came out of Phil Oaks and Country Joe McDonald and, and then songs that came out of World War II or songs that came out of the Civil Rights Movement or songs that came out of the Labor Movement. But there weren't any songs that, that were about what do women think about war? And that tour really said, posed that question to me. Fortunately, um, there were two songs already written into the show. The FTA show was written predominantly from writings that the soldiers had written. They had newsletters, and the, the comics that wrote this show pulled from the newsletters. But there were also a couple songs that were already there when I arrived, and, and both of them that I was assigned to sing were written by Bev, Beverly Grant, who is a singer back in, <laughs> in New York City. And... Um, one was, I can't be yours and still be me. And I wasn't a feminist yet. So I was singing these words, and while I was singing them, my feminism was born. I guess I was a feminist by action. I didn't let anything stop me, really, but I still didn't think about women's oppression. Um, and the other song was, I'm tired of fuckers fucking over me. And that... <laughs> kind of clear, you know, it was not subtle. And the soldiers loved that song because, at, you know, certainly the women did, but the men did also because they felt so messed over by the military leadership, you know. And uh, so that was a big hit in the, in the show. But when I got home, I realized that I needed to start not only writing these songs, but first figuring out what I thought. And it was shortly after that, I'm going to leap into the next thing, right. it was shortly after that I met some women who were um, lesbian songwriters who were asking that question of themselves, but about their, 
their lives as, as lesbians and feminists. And Meg Christian, who is a lesbian feminist songwriter, said to me at one of those meetings, Crossing of Paths, said, have you ever written a song just about a woman? I said, yeah. And I went back and looked at my material, and every single one of the songs had a male character in it. It had an institution, a father, a brother, an ex-lover, a soon-to-be lover, and all of them were in reaction and relationship to. And that just shocked me. I couldn't believe that. And then I was, had the same question, what, if, what would I write about if I was going to write just about a woman? I know now it's hard for us to imagine that was a question, but it, I didn't know. In 1972, I didn't know. And that having to understand something in order to write about it has been the relationship in my life ever since. I have to understand it to write it. I write it, and then it helps me understand it, and then I have to understand it, and I write it. And it's just been like that. Such a, a great um, companionship of those two, those two things. It works that way for us, too, with your music. No, <laughs> oh. but seriously, as we, learn, as we learn about issues, and then we have the song, and the song stays with us. Mm -hmm. um, and then we come, next time we come back to an issue, a problem in the world, we have we have a different level of consciousness, a different awareness. And I, I think that your music has played that role. Mm. Um, I'll keep saying complimentary things like that throughout the evening. I, um. I take them as compliments, but I also take them as critical thinking. Because I think we, we underestimate and undervalue the relationship of culture in this country because we live in a capitalist country that so dominates the entertainment business. And... Um, I would love for us to have a much deeper understanding of that really important relationship between art and consciousness and change and critical thinking. You're listening to a TNS conversation with Holly Near and Erwin Keller. Yeah, I was thinking, as, as I was thinking ahead to tonight, I was, I was thinking... You know, who has taken this mantle? Like, uh, where, where is the lineage now? And I was thinking about, you know, the terrible years of the AIDS epidemic. And um, who were the musicians? That were, what was the soundtrack of it? And we didn't have something comparable to what you brought to so, to so many movements. Um, but then it occurred to me we had a, a visual art tradition. In the, in the AIDS epidemic that was really powerful mm -hmm. and that became really identifiable to the country and to activists. We knew what a Keith Haring looked like mm -hmm. and we knew what a Robbie Kono looked like and we knew what sort of graffiti art and Queer Nation stickers looked like. And the cultural, um, the cultural production was happening in the visual world. But I'm curious uh, what you think, who you think are, uh, are taking up. I just want up. to stick with that yeah, for a minute. Sure. That's really important to know that the way in which we express ourselves isn't always going to be through the same form. You know, it might leap in a generation. I mean, that was an amazing, like you say, art, a time for art in there. And probably um, music wasn't the way that was going to happen because, sadly, it was at the same time that was the, um, the rise of disco, and disco dominated in a lot of gay men's lives to go out and dance and to forget. Mm. It was not a music that invited you to remember. It was a music that invited you to distance yourself for a moment so that you could have 
a, a piece of relief in the midst of this terrible dying off of one's people, you yeah. know? And um, it was huge. I sang with the Gay Men's Chorus in, in New York City at, at their Carnegie Hall show, and they every year would put out poinsettias for people who had passed from their chorus. I think as many as 80 men died from their chorus. So this expression through um, the arts in New York was, uh, was different than the sort of rise of women's music, but it served similar purpose. I, I also, you know, I also wonder um, about um, the use of music nowadays um, besides the commodification of it by, by record labels, et cetera. Although now we have this kind of populist option through social media, through YouTube, people getting their own music out there in ways that they couldn't ever before. Mm -hmm. But also wondering if sort of what we expect from music has changed in a, in a way that would make... Well, your music is very honest. It's very forthright. It says what it, it, says what it means. There's no... Um, there's no conceit to it. And I, I wonder sometimes if we have become too cynical of people to be able to listen to music that actually says, here's what I think about this. Well, it depends on whether you're of European descent or African descent or Latin descent. If you want a music to come along that's going to sound like Pete Seeger, those days are over. And, and well, they should be. You know, we can't stay still as... Uh, as a culture, and I think that my generation and the one before me and, and maybe the one just after is going through some kind of heartbreak that they can't stay in, in that musical form. And maybe it'll come back again, I don't know, but I think there's incredible truth-telling coming out of spoken word and rap and hip-hop, as well as a lot of trash, but that's true in folk music too. I mean, there's a, there are some bad folk songs, but it's... Um, it's just not our community speaking mm. it, mm. right? And we have a lot of people haven't trained themselves to he to hear in a different language. Mm. And um, I I can be one of them. I have difficult time, I, not so much with spoken word, but with when there's music involved. In the and it's too. I didn't like heavy rock and roll either. I I kind of oversensitive to that. Sound. I went to a eurythmic concert at the Greek theater and that bass <laughs> was in my bones and I thought, I don't think I can, I can do this, you know? So I'm kind of a conservative in that regard. But I have young people in my life and they know all the words to those songs that come out of the hip hop community or come out of spoken word that come out of um, black and Latin street songs that are telling the truth about prison and are telling the truth about murder and are telling the truth about cop violence and are telling the truth about. And um, so I hesitate to make a generalization about whether, why aren't young people doing X, Y, and Z? Because I think they are. They're just not doing it in the key of C with two other chords. And <laughs> that's, that's just a really important thing for us to remember when we're analyzing young people. Um, so so I, I work at that. So who is doing the social activism, political activism now that, that makes you feel most hopeful? Yeah, so I like the Occupy, and there was music that came out of that. There was also a, um, a new way of communicating in meetings 
to try to get the information from a speaker back to the end of the crowd. I thought that was all really fun. I really... The, the human uh, microphone. Yeah. The human microphone. I really uh, have been awestruck by the Black Lives Matter movement. I've been amazed by the student movement to stop having their school uniforms and sweatshirts and everything made in sweatshops by, you know, 10-year-old kids in Indonesia. Um, I think the Take Back the Night and the Stop Rape on Campus uh, movement's quite amazing. Um, the environmental work that's going on, the anti-fracking stuff that's going on. And the only reason that we're all not feeling energized by it in a, on a daily basis is because our media, for the most part, is owned by right-wing corporations. And so if you woke up every day and the headlines told you about all this great stuff that's going on, you'd have a really different day, you know? And again, social media allows us to find out some of this stuff, and I pass it along on Facebook. I don't like being on Facebook, but I find stories like what's going up in the Dakotas, and I pass that on, and people on my Facebook page didn't read about it in their newspapers. They didn't know it was happening. So that's a great part of the social Where do you media. suggest that we listen and we look? Because I'll tell you, a lot of us have been having a lot of terrible days. There, um, well, what do you say, Common Dreams? Who, where do you get your news from? KPFA. 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 Daily Coast. Democracy Now. Daily Coast. Daily Coast. Counterpunch. Counterpunch. There's a thing called Alternet. That's a, kind of a reader's digest of articles that they pick out from all over the place. Um, but even those are starting to be depressing because um, some of our own news people don't realize that we have to hear the victories. We have to hear the activism. We have to hear the enthusiasm. We can't just be bombarded by how awful everything is. And uh, even these alternative press things, I really don't need another journalist to talk to me about the Republican presidential candidate. You know, I, it's as if everybody has to write, write their article. I want to hear about how to defeat this, this person and what's going on among ourselves to make that happen. And um, so I think we're kind of, uh, there's some extraordinary journalists and some amazing thinking that's going on. I'm going to blank out on his name. I'm, this is what's happening to my mind. Um, Coates, the African-American. Unbelievable, man. And I think there are, are people like, he's not a singer, but I think he's educating a whole generation of people through his daring writing and, and his audio tapes and his books about racism. I just, you know, whoa, where, where did he come from? It's extraordinary, you know, so... I wish, you know, just, I wish there were, well, Toshi Regan, she's next generation songwriter. She writes some great songs. She's the daughter of Bernice Regan, who was the founder of the Freedom Sweet Singers Honey. and Sweet, Sweet Honey, Honey in the Rock. And um, if you go to some of the women's music festivals, there's some, um, there's some political writers who are writing. They're not as globally connected as I wish, but... Um, they're writing about what they know and what they're experiencing. And so um, I think that's all one can ask. If you're not living in a time where you're offered a different experience, you can't write about an experience you don't know about. What is, what, what is behind our not being as globally connected as 
as you were when you started out? Was it Vietnam? Was it Vietnam? I think put- Vietnam changed us as a as a as young people, regardless of what side one took. That was there wasn't anybody in our country not affected by that. Wars can go on now in Afghanistan, and there are a lot of people who aren't affected by that in this country. But that wasn't true around Vietnam. And then I think the work of the United Farm Workers educated us in California and, and in some of the other farm working states, um, which led, and I think the um, exiles that came in from Central and Latin America educated us in a way that wasn't as big a movement, but um, being part of solidarity communities around uh, Nicaragua and El Salvador um, and Chile, the military coup in Chile, um, it felt to me like more activists were affected by those things. South Africa, that was huge, the organizing and divesting um, funds from South Africa. Somehow I remember it being more accessible to be interested in that. And even now, wanting and being interested, I find access to information about global wars and things going on much harder to access. Yeah, it's interesting. You know, when you were talking before about all the advanced people that would do the organizing around FTA, the FTA tour, and I thought, and I, I keep hearing, uh, remembering back to those times or thinking about this, I'm thinking, how did they communicate with each other? Um, we're so used to having such instant access to so many people in so many ways um, with the media, the technology that we have now, and somehow they managed to do this with long-distance telephone calls. And mimeograph machines. <laughs> and mimeograph machines. That they well, had part of it was that they didn't waste time on their computers, right? They had a lot more time. Well, I think uh, that's a piece of it is, yeah. that, is that we're, also, we're so bombarded with so much stuff Mm-hmm. Um, that we become, we, we don't know how to curate our own interests and curate our, uh, the important things happening in our lives. Right. Um, everything presents itself as being equally important. And you had to work on your feet. I mean, you didn't have time to have a conference call with everybody and something, I'm sure the people who were in the Philippines who had to get all that stuff organized, if they couldn't reach somebody in the States, they just made decisions themselves, you know? They just did it. And I'm sure no one ever got any backlash for the decisions they made. <laughs> I never did. <laughs> um, I don't know. It's um, it's a, it's frightening to think that we're so manipulated by um, the news media, and I and I I have great respect for the journalists who fight through that. But I I think in general there's just. We're really out of touch with each other you know, while we're so in touch with each other. And it's interesting that the, the examples you gave of the, the kinds of activism right now that's very exciting, Occupy and Black Lives Matter um, and w- what's going on in the Dakotas, you know, these are places where people, people put their bodies on the line, where they get out of the computers and they're, and they're sitting. Um, mm-hmm. They're actually in the physical world with, with other activists and facing power in the physical world. Um, and it takes actually doing that, it seems, to really capture our imaginations. Yeah. I mean, if back before cell phones and computers, we heard that there were thousands of people going to the Dakotas, we'd all go to the Dakotas. I mean, that's what we would do. Now we can watch it <laughs> on the computer. So it's... Um, I don't know. I think it's it's tricky now for young people. We blame them a lot for not 
You know, I constantly hear people saying, where are all the young people? I go, well, if you don't know where they are, then you're looking in the wrong places, but it's not their fault. You know, they're doing what they, they're doing this stuff, but we don't know about it. You know? Yeah, there's great work happening. There's great work happening in the Bay Area by young people. People in their yeah. 20s and 30s are organizing in incredible Some ways. kids up in Ukiah started the no, no more plastic bags from grocery stores and stuff. And they got taken over to, California, to the Sacramento and given an award. Now it's a national insult if you don't take your own bags into the grocery store, right? But there's just a bunch of kids started this. And... We should all have access to that information, and, and we don't. I actually heard that, um, this is a leap, but it's connected, heard that the Green Center is booked by Clear Channel. Is that true? Don't know. Okay. I, what? It's not? No. So there's no influence of that in the booking? The artistic director is the is a very famous conductor, and then there's people under there that book the one kind of stuff. Okay. No, it is. But there are venues. Maybe it's not there, but there are venues where only the artists who are booked through booking agents connected to Clear Channel are booked, and if you don't go through them, you don't get your single played on their radio station. Mm -hmm. It's that kind of stuff. That's happening in the music business, so we know it's going on in the news world. Want to leap to something else? Yeah, let's leap. Let's leap um, a couple of choices here, but let's let's start with, um, I just want to come back to your songwriting a little bit, because you're so prolific, and you've taken on such intense topics in your songs that I, I can't imagine other song, practically any other songwriters touching with the, maybe the exceptions of your predecessors in your lineage, who I see as, you know, Pete Seeger and Woody Guthrie. Um, and you've written so much. How does, this, how does this come out of you? Is it painful torture? Is it, is it uh, does it, as soon as you know what your position is, does it pour out? Um, and where do you find the stories that you're gonna use to tell? Well, the stories are everywhere. I mean, there's how many people in here? There's that many stories right here. And people meet me at airports, and we're in the car, and they're talking. And, or I'm standing on a street corner, and um, I see something. I mean, I'm very—I do—I guess what I would call it is active noticing. I'm in a constant state of active noticing. There's a lot of things I don't remember, but— like, I, whole parts of my life I sort of forget. I, I don't remember what I was doing in 19, blah, blah, blah. But I'm, I notice details. And good songwriting or any kind of creative work to make is in the details. It's, in, it's not that a whole bunch of people gathered to hear some singer-songwriter talk. It's somebody who decides to look at what shoes you all wore and to create a a philosophy, a story, an outcome based on the, that detail. And so when I learned, and some of my earlier songs are more rhetorical. I mean, I don't know a whole lot of people who write songs that have the word genocide in them. <laughs> Real singable, you know what I mean? Oh, Lord. But somehow or other, that song uh, meant 
something to people and was... It's a great song. And yeah, it's, it, it's a great song. It's beautiful music. And it's stuck with all of us. Yeah. And it tells stories. It even and, and yes, it has that moment where, really, did she just, just say genocide, genocide in the song? <laughs> and, oh. and there's a truth-telling to it. You know, the beginning mm-hmm. of the chorus, that's just a lie. Mm-hmm. One of the many. And we were not raised... To, to look at anything we were taught as lies. There's something so daring about, I mean, I get chills mm. thinking about that song for that reason, for the, for the chutzpah it took to put it out there, and then the chutzpah that we all felt to think it mm-hmm. once we heard the song. So, um, so yeah, I, always, I was also thinking about that. Who would write a song with genocide <laughs> in the title? But, but you somehow pulled that off. Somehow did. Um, but over the years, I realized that that might have been uh, you know, you get that that little star hanging over your, you know, your little good person taking care of you on that one song, but that I should learn not to do it too many times. Because one of the things that people hate the most about political music is how boring it is. And um, I, I hate to say it, but they're right. I mean, they're not a lot of... of of really outspoken political song. Nobody wants to sit and listen to 14 verses about fuel rods. And you have to figure out how to write something (laughs) that grabs your heart, that makes you understand that that it's in your home, it's in your family, it's in your love life. And you have to personalize it in some way. And I always think it's like a camera that you, you go in close to the detail and you're in there and people think, oh, this is gonna be a song about blue. And then the camera pulls back, and it's a song about the ocean. So when you're working on a song or a poem or whatever, that perspective is really important. And it also throws the listener off, because you don't start with the ocean. You start with the blue, and and you take them slowly into the big picture. Have there been any topics that you've decided, I will not write a song about this? or that you tried and couldn't? I've had a hard time writing about abortion. I actually have verses in songs that reference it, like the song Old Time Woman. Um, And I have written a song that's on one of the records recordings I did with Ronnie, I think, called um, If You Care About Life, Why Don't You Care About Me? What is it actually called? Um, <laughs> forget. But at any rate, it's from the point of the woman who has too many children. She knows she can't survive having another one. And if you care about life, you know, all the pro-life people, why don't you care about me? So that was one approach that I took to it. But it's a hard, it's a hard one to write about. Um, and I think, it's a, I think it's hard to write about Palestine and Israel. I think it's hard to write about torture. <clears throat> And it's the job to me of the songwriter, if I'm going to take those on, is to figure out how to do it in a way that doesn't um, force you to leave the room before the song is over. And that's tricky. 
I've, I've actually been a witness to people, they, after and during and after Vietnam, I was part of groups that would sit and listen to people who had been tortured and who had been in tiger cages in Saigon. And it was actually easier the closer you got to it to deal with it. From a distance, like I just, I'm reading a book right now and it gets, they're described, I can't read, I just skim over that part and get to the next part. But when I was actually sitting with the person holding their hand and listening, it was a, it was a different relationship to the story. And I always found that fascinating. So I guess the, the songwriter would have to figure out how to bring the audience closer to it. If you keep that detachment, I think it's harder to hear it in some way. Mm-hmm. Um, you've you've had the um, good fortune and maybe not always good fortune of being symbolic for lots of people. <laughs> I remember that um, uh, when I was first listening to your music, when I was coming out, you know, I was I was imagining my future life of loneliness, and I was um, uh, so I was listening to. Um, Hopped off, the tra- hopped off the plane, ran down the oh, map. Um, maybe someday one will do. Someday one will do. <laughs> I was like, yes, yes, she's speaking, she's speaking to me that it's okay. I'll it's be, okay to I won't be, be, I'll be alone all my life because I'm the only homosexual in the world, but, but I won't be unhappy. Um, you know, and then, and, then, and then imagine my surprise came out. And that was huge for me, as it was for probably a lot of people in this room. It's like, oh, she's, she's, she's speaking to us because she's one of us in this way. Um, and then I remember years later when you were no longer in a relationship with a woman, I remember there being backlash. I remember unkind things being said. And I want to know what that experience was like because it was, it was a really hot time. It was, you know, it was... A, <laughs> It was a time when, you know, it was a time in, in the movement when people were finding power and also people were very wounded and, um, and you and others were really important around, around our identity, right? And so you ended up having to hold a lot of people's expectations and hopes. Um, what was that like for you? Because that, that had to have been difficult. It was, and we were so young and naive and beautifully so. You know, I think if you're experienced, you wouldn't do the things we all did. <laughs> you know, you know better, but we didn't know better. And that's what's so great about young people. Don't, don't tell them not to do something because they don't know how to do it. Otherwise, if they know how to do it, they won't do it. You, you do it because you don't know how to do it. And the, it was just an extraordinary time, but we did bring blood. I'll tell you, we hurt each other Um, I don't know if there's a way around that. Every movement I've ever talked to anybody, whether the Panthers or whatever, people hurt each other. It's just what happens. So I keep hoping another generation will come along and not feel the need to do that. But I'm sure they're, anyway. Um, Holding it is really, when you said, how did you hold it? That was it. That is, to me, the job of any of us, whether we're holding a family or a community or a nation or a a world, an idea, is do we have the structural and spiritual capacity to hold the whole thing? And 
obviously not all the time. We can crumble. We need to rest. We need to go away. We need to regroup. But I don't think one can do this work. I could not have done this work if I didn't understand that. And when I first came out, I pretty much destroyed my relationship with the left. They thought I had lost my mind. It was all that leftover homophobia from McCarthyism and from communism. And, and I had become the voice of the progressive left. That, um, And then I brought this bombshell into it. And there were so many people who didn't understand. They said, that's personal. That's none of our business. They saw it completely um, irrelevant to the human and civil rights movements, and not nearly as important as people who were being imprisoned in South Africa. So it was very hard to know. Um, obviously, it's not the same as being tortured and imprisoned in South Africa, but a lot of people on the left didn't realize how brutalized people had been in the gay community, both emotionally and physically. So that was going to be a journey, an educational journey. But so it was not the backlash of the lesbian community that came first. It was the backlash from the left. So then when I ended up after, I don't know, 12, 13 years of being more out than, I think I was the first out lesbian artist to be in People magazine. I mean, there were a lot of people who were out who were activists, but they weren't, there weren't a lot of public artists. I think there was, um, what's her name, Ruby Fruit Jungle. Um, Rita Mae Brown. Rita Mae Brown, and then me, and I don't know. You couldn't fill up one hand. So when I um, ended up finding myself back in relationship with men, I didn't really say so publicly because I had no need. In the way that I had come out, I felt the need to promote uh, gay and lesbian rights by putting my personal relationships out because people were getting killed still. I didn't feel that was true for heterosexuality, so I didn't really have any need to talk about my heterosexuality because I didn't come out to be public about my sexuality. I came out to be um, part of a political social change movement about oppressed people. Um, but after a while, it's, it started feeling like people thought I was lying so it was this moment where I just thought, oh, hang on a few more minutes. Because when you only have four out public people and one goes away, it's really noticeable. And there were people who were uh, gay or lesbian who had been outed, who went on the Johnny Carson show and said, oh, it was a phase or, you know, it didn't really happen or I didn't like it or somebody forced me to or whatever. And I'm sure that the gay community, was, the lesbian community in particular, thought that's what I was going to do. I was going to abandon ship. So there was a lot of rage that had come from historic precedents. And I knew that. And I thought, if I can just not take this personally a little bit longer... There are going to be so many out people that they won't even notice I've gone in. You know, it's just a matter of holding on. And that almost happened. But then along came Katie Lang and Melissa Etheridge and, you know, Tracy Chapman. And then people didn't really care that much. 
There were people, lesbians, who said to me, why do you still sing lesbian songs if you're in a relationship with a man? And I said, well, I sing, I sing songs about parents. I'm not a parent. I sing songs about children. I'm no longer a child. I sing songs about people in Latin America. I'm not Latin American. And I will continue to sing songs about lesbians um, because I'm a songwriter. These are stories. This is not a journal. I don't take my journal on stage and read it to you. And the other day at a talk like this um, at a lesbian organization, someone said, well, are you or aren't you? You know, there's still room. Where, where do you stand? And I realized that um, sexuality is very low on my identity list. And for some people, it's the first. And, and rightly so. It's the identity that politicized them. It's the identity from which they do all their other activism. And that has never been true for me. You're listening to a TNS conversation with Holly Near and Erwin Keller. So my personal choices when just are, are pretty low on the priority. It's high for other people because I think people love to have validation, but it's not very high for me. Um, so I said to her, I, can't, I don't really know how to, I, I'm not with anybody now. I don't know if I'm going to be with anybody again in my life. If I do, I don't know what gender they'll be. Um, but it's not really a big issue for me. I said, the bigger thing, I said, if I was something that was going to be on that priority list, it would be, I probably would say I'm monogamous. And that, that's as close as I can get to telling the truth about my sexuality. <laughs> Right now. Uh, so. let, me, let me ask people to raise their hands if they're single. Okay, just so you know. Yeah. Okay. You know, um. <laughs> there'll be a singles party after this. <laughs> but there's so many things we are, right? We're parents. We're workers. We're addicts. We're sexual beings. We're employed or unemployed. We're terrified. We're, you know, we're all these things. Tell us about your, your spiritual life a little bit. I don't know what that's like. You don't talk about it much, but I'm also, but I'm thinking about it in the question of how you hold things. Mm -hmm. Because your work has been in the trenches of some of the hardest, some of the hardest things to look at and think about that any of us possibly could. And you've done that a lot and consistently. And I'm curious what practices you have, if any, what allows you to be able to hold that? Hmm, that's harder than the sexuality question. Well, it's not. <laughs> <laughs> um, it's actually been kind of tough not to have a church or a religion um, that simplifies things, which is actually why I think there are churches and and temples and mosques. And it allows people to have a family, a home, an identity, some boundaries, a place from which to work, a place from which to think. I think those are, there's all good reasons why that. And when it stays true to that, it can be a fabulous thing for, for people, for families, for communities. Um, when that that religion or that gathering becomes a political force to decide who gets to live and breathe and who doesn't, then it's another, there's another problem. Um, for example, had I been part of a, a conservative church, looking the way I look and having the voice I have, oh, 
my God. I could have raised the roof and made so much money. And then the, the spiritual leader of thousands and thousands of people, you are so lucky that I didn't do that. Because <laughs> I'm really good at mobilizing people with my voice. You know, I'm really good at getting people to rise up. And so in some ways, it's good that I don't belong to anything. (laughs) Well, the question isn't only a religious question. Um, But, um, and maybe we we take the spiritual words out of the question. I really want to know, because we are all bombarded with images that are really troubling and with... um, uh, images of problems that we're told we can't solve and that they're only going to get worse. We are all eating and breathing a regular diet of discouragement. And um, and this is, some, in a certain way, these are things that you have taken on voluntarily. I will look at these things and I will look at these things for um, uh, throughout my life and I will um, look at them critically and bring them to people. Um, and whatever you can share about how you're able to do that and not be in despair, I think would be useful for all of us at this moment. Uh, first of all, I have had periods of time in my life with great despair, where you could have found me face down in my living room. And um, I'm sure those were um, important moments in terms of helping me find the answer to the, I don't, the questions you I, I don't think I could skim along the top on that one. Um, but eventually, over time, I would say the things that have helped me the most is one, I um, was introduced to the idea of codependency, of this idea that we can save the world, which came, was very much a part of the left training that I grew up with, even to the point of finish your vegetables, they're starving children in China, which never made any sense to me, but boy, that was the, that was it. So this idea that we can save the world is part of what makes us droop Mm. because it's so heavy and it's arrogant and maybe even narcissistic, I don't know, to think that we can change the world. And that was was in the message from the very beginning. It was in all the songs, it was in the politics, it was in the rallies. And people talked about freedom. And freedom freedom is actually a choice. But it's... You have to choose the freedom you want because the raped and the rapist can't both be free, right? You got to make a decision on which side of that you're going to stand. So once, as Dr. Bernice Johnson Regan says, once you know where you stand, it takes a lot of pressure off you. You don't have to be deciding all the time. You just know where you stand. And then it becomes someone else's job to remove you. But there you are. And there is in that standing a kind of holding of your own space. This is the space in which I live and move and breathe. And it doesn't mean that I'm not teachable. I can change what I think. But in this moment in time, with what I know, this is where 
I stand. So that's been very helpful. It's been helpful to um, history, has been helpful to understand that there have been people who gathered at the town square to watch the public hanging for hundreds of years. We are an odd species. We are really weird. I don't know why we torture each other. I don't know why we ignore our young. I don't know why we rape and beat them up. I don't know why we send our young out as the first line of defense. I do not understand this animal that we are. And once I realized, not only do we not, can we not single-handedly change the world, but we are actually animals, that also really helped me to understand that we can't just change the situation. We have to deal with the fact that we're this creature that is pretty out of control when it comes to the way in which evolution has progressed through time. So all of those are little reality checks that got me to a place where I could say, oh, well, then this isn't really such a big deal. This is the time I'm alive in. These are the choices I've made. When someone says, how can you keep going? I go, well, what's the other alternative? <laughs> I mean, really, what is the other alternative? To hang, I don't want to hang out with right-wing conservatives. I don't want to hang out with people who aren't interested in education. I don't want to be around people who aren't caring about their fellow citizens. I mean, I'm exactly where I want to be. So why, I, I, why fight it? And then if I want to take a vacation, I do. And I know that I'm privileged enough to be able to do that. I mean, I, I, I can't pretend to be poor. I can't pretend to be a person of color. I can't pretend to be a child. I can't pretend I am who I am. But with what I am and what I know, I do the best I can until I'm gone. And, and that's all I know how to do. Mm -hmm. And it's not all that fancy. <laughs> <You know? laughs> and I've had to learn to be humble. I've had to be able to sit and have someone like Dr. Regan tell me you're, uh, you're wrong. And to be able to sit there and say, okay, explain that to me. When someone says to you that was racist, instead of saying I'm not racist, you say, well, I of all people don't want to be that, so help me understand what I've just done. And it's the same thing around sexism or gender or whatever. If we don't fight it, if we just don't be ashamed about our racism or don't be ashamed that it, we shame each other as white people. Who's more racist than thou? Or we're all, we all got shit, you know? We all got stuff to deal with. And when I learned to just say, wow, tell me more about that, that took a lot of pressure off. You know, so I've just learned how to let all of these pressures go away. And um, mm. I, that's... Are there days where I get up and I, there are days I get up and I go, I don't, I've worked all my life for, for human rights and I don't like humans. I'm not interested in them anymore. <laughs> I'm done. I'm going out to nature and uh, I don't think there's going to be any animals that are going to come up and, and be, do unusual behavior. The bears are going to attack, and the lions are going to eat, and they, you know, they're going to do what they do, and there won't be any surprises. But I'm really done with you all. <laughs> you know? Thank you so much. <laughs>
And I give myself days like that. You know? I... <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I'm done with you all too. <laughs> uh, the church of Dunism. Holly is very funny, and I think <laughs> from your body of work, um, people might not always catch that first, you know. Um, and uh, I have to say that in preparing for today, I went on YouTube. And uh, I caught the episode of All in the Family, <laughs> where you are Gloria's very pregnant friend, Mona. And you are hilarious. You are just hilarious. And, um, and I, uh, so, YouTube, Gloria's pregnancy. Um, but it also made me realize that, um, that you made a very conscious choice about... Uh, about the career you would have and the messaging you would do. Um, and it's a choice that I'm very grateful for. Mm. It's a choice I'm very grateful for. Because you could have had a very different career. I could have. I hope that it, it might have been equally good and influential. I mean, aren't we glad there's Bonnie Raitt in the world? And aren't we glad that there's, um, there are stars out there who do things with their money and their power and... Um, I think if I had gone the way of the industry just because I was born with a good voice and talent, I probably would have, quote, made it, and I hope that I would have done something good with it. Um, and there are times when I'm watching the Tonys or the Grammys or the whatever that my little envy button goes <laughs> off, and I would have liked to have the power and the money to do good things with, but that's not the choice I made. And... Um, who knows? And my dad, when I asked him questions about, do you wish you'd rather done that? And he said, whenever we think about another path we might have taken, we always think of it as going well. <laughs> <laughs> but I might have, you know, stayed in Hollywood and had a drug overdose. So, you know, it's... Uh, That's coming. Heaven know. forbid. <laughs> uh, I want to I give uh, your admirers here a chance to ask some questions. That's oh, okay. fine. Yeah. Is there, Catherine. Do you want to hand her the yeah. mic? Or? Um, what's something you've changed your mind about? Mm. What is something I've changed my mind about? I know I have. Um, let me, <laughs> I'm not sure I'm going to cough it up here right at the moment. Um, I think I've changed my mind about being so adamant. Um, it's not really an issue that I changed my mind about, but the, I think when I was younger, in order to have the courage to do what I did, I had to be adamant about it. And I don't think in the long run it's useful because we're very different people and we go through our changes at different times. And so just because I came out didn't mean everybody else had to come out. But in order to be brave enough to come out, I wanted everybody else. You know, it's that kind of... Um, and I see it... Um, I see it in, in people who are in political activism. Um, sometimes it's just they're obstinate. But other times it's because it's what's holding their bravery together. 
Um, I think that's a big change in the way I work in the world. Mm -hmm. Another question. Yeah, hi. Um, could you just address briefly your work and friendship with Ronnie Gilbert? Yeah. Uh, can I, question can about I Ronnie Gilbert. talk about Ronnie Gilbert? For those of you who don't know Ronnie, she was the female singer in the Weavers, which was the singing group that had Pete Seeger and Lee Hay, Fred Hellerman, and Ronnie. And Fred just Fred just and died Fred in the past couple died. weeks. So they're all, they've all left the planet. It really, when Fred went, that was, it was quite a thing. To, I really felt like, when my parents died, I felt like I became a grown-up, and I felt the same, an mm. adult and moved into my elder status. And I felt that when Fred died. I go, okay, now I'm, now I'm the elder. Um, Ronnie um, had a huge voice. And I would have to say that what was so attractive to that collaboration was her, her voice. Um, I had done collaborations with other people where I had to scale back in order to have it be an equal, a fair game on stage. And she also came out of theater. She'd done a lot of work with Joe Chaikin in New York City and various theater groups, radical theater groups. So she had a very theatrical cabaret style, as do I. So um, she wasn't really a traditional folk singer. And uh, so we had a lot of fun together because we weren't limited by, neither of us played the guitar. And so we could just go out front and both be show women together. And uh, it was fun, it was lively, it was big. And we brought together generations into the room. That was really, really fun. So yeah, that was a that was good. Yeah. Mm -hmm. um, am I correct? You wrote the song I Ain't Afraid of Your Religion? Mm -hmm. Yes. So to me, that song says it all about spirituality. Mm -hmm. Thank you for that. And you didn't reference that when you were talking about it. It crossed my mind, but then I thought if people didn't know the song, that it goes, um, I ain't afraid of your Yahweh. I ain't afraid of your Allah. I ain't afraid of your Jesus. I'm afraid of what you do in the name of your God. Mm. So that's a, <laughs> wow. Wow. Yeah. wow. I love that song when I heard it. And, and one of the questions that was kind of percolating in my mind is what kind of response you got from that? Oh, yeah. If there were people who might have been offended by that. Yeah. In fact, my... Uh, <laughs> the question is, were there people offended by that? <laughs> my dad used to think that if you hadn't offended someone or you weren't in jail, you weren't doing enough political activism. <laughs> Did your dad sing that one at the bar? <laughs> yeah, yeah, that was the one, right? No, he... Um, I realize also I haven't talked about my mother. She was a wonderful person, too. But um, that song, yeah. Uh, the first time I got... A, Someone came up afterwards, was a young man at a um, conservative college in Southern Colorado. And he said that while I was singing that, his girlfriend had got up and left. And he followed her out and asked her why. And she was very offended and thought I was being anti-Christian. Um, so that surprised me. That's not the group I thought I'd hear from. And he came back and he said, I just want to clarify something. He said, that's not really what you're saying, is it? And I said, no. And he says, okay. And he said, I'm going to go back and tell her that. But, um, and then uh, a couple times from Jews who didn't like me saying Yahweh. 
a lot of us have gotten over that. (laughs) (laughs) Well, it's difficult because I come from... Uh, what, what do I want to call it? It's not really even a belief system. I don't have a belief system. Um, and I don't... Um, I have icons and fantasies and fairies and elves and uh, eagles and all kinds of things that come into my spiritual life. But if someone says something bad about an eagle, I don't take it personally, you know? And so it's hard for me to realize I could hurt someone's feelings by talking about their uh, religious icons. It's just not part of my experience. And so when I was done with that, Michael Lerner said, was, she said, do you, do you sing that song at all your concerts? <laughs> he said, do you think it's really helpful? And... Um, <laughs> So we had an interesting conversation about that. I don't know how he feels and, about it now. And I should clarify for the Commonweal audience that we're talking about Rabbi Michael Lerner, yes. not Michael Lerner, the executive director of Commonweal. Oh, the founder right. Of no, this was Rabbi Lerner in the Bay Area, right? Um, because I think it's hard, it was hard for him to explain. I, I don't know whether he personally cared one way or the other, but it, it, I understand it. Um, it had trigger possibilities. But in that particular song, it wasn't intentional. I didn't start out wanting to trigger anybody. I just didn't understand that it would. It was just part of my religious naivety. See, that's why you should have been a singing drag queen, where you can just <laughs> go in with the intention. Of insulting everybody. <laughs> that's right. right. Oh, we had a whole, the Kinsey uh, Six had a whole song, a, a setting of, uh, a political setting of my way. Oh. <laughs> uh, that was uh, Yahweh. It was, uh, oh. I, I'll, uh, I'll vote for Yahweh. So, <laughs> Barbara, you have a question. I'm wondering how it felt to have others take one of your songs and do something with it, particularly the Clasmatics. I love recording the this. Yiddish. Mm-hmm. It was great. They talked to, to me about it, and I thought it was fabulous, and we performed it together at the Jewish Music Festival in San Francisco, and I guess it was in Berkeley. What song did they do? This one. I ain't afraid in Yiddish. Oh, yeah. really? And um, Ronnie tried to sing the verse when we traveled, and she just, it, there was so, ma- so many words in Yiddish, you know, it was really amazing. So, um, yeah, that was great. I loved that. And I love that they had the courage to take it to some of the places they go. Um, I, I'm sure they don't sing it everywhere they go, but they, they, it is in their repertoire. That's fantastic. More questions? Mac? Uh, as a closing, uh, uh, which which song do you think Irwin could sing best with you? <laughs> there, there's no need. Thank you, thank you, Mac, for your confidence. Do we have? Oh, we're past time. Okay, I just want to say one quick thing uh, about the election, and I'm not going to talk about him. I, it, not him. Him. Um, we know that this is a sick and terrifying person. So I don't need to hear any more uh, articles about that. But what I'm concerned about is us. Um, I'm concerned about people who think this is the first time that you have to vote for the lesser of two candidates. I've been voting since I was 18, and it's pretty much been the case every time. This is not new. We live in a capitalist, imperialist, corporate country and you don't get to be president unless you're in that ball game. And 
I don't understand why people feel the need now to be come to their purest thought around, around this. I don't know whether it's because Clinton's a woman or whether it's that she's such an obvious hawk. Um, I don't know. I don't know. But I, I realized, I was going back to, I worked for Obama, much to the dismay of some of the women who were working for Hillary. And when that primary was over and Obama had won, we actually asked the Clinton campaign to turn on a dime and immediately start working for Obama after they'd all that time. It's not unlike what how the, people, the Sanders people are feeling, being asked to turn and support somebody they didn't support. And the reason they ultimately had to come around and do that is because Sarah Palin was on the ticket. Yes. And, you know, I know McCain was also, but the part that was really frightening was her and what she represented and the growth of this is just an ongoing movement from what she already started and people started before him. Trump's just calling on that group and mobilizing them and giving them permission to say the things that we pretty much have outlawed saying in a decent society. So I just think that we need to figure out how to calm each other down, get each other to the polls, pick the person we most likely want to struggle with for the next eight years, because that's always the way it is. That's always the way it is. And that person who gets in will probably do better things domestically, but they're all friends with Kissinger. They're all friends with the corporate monster. They're all part of the military-industrial complex. They're all going to continue the wars. They're all going to continue to fund um, military budgets. And they have for decades. So I don't understand the conversation that's happening among progressives right now as if this were the first time this had ever come up. You know. So I just want to leave you with that. Thank you all so much for coming. Thank you, Holly Nair. You've been listening to a TNS Conversation with Holly Nier and Erwin Keller. Thank you for listening to TNS, the new school at Commonweal. The new school at Commonweal is directed by Michael Lerner. Our program coordinator is Kara Epstein. Our audio producer is Ken Adams. And our theme music is by Suzanne Ciani. Visit us online at tns.commonweal.org. That's tns.commonweal.org. Commonweal is spelled C-O-M-M-O-N-W-E-A-L. You can also find us on SoundCloud, iTunes, Facebook, YouTube, and Vimeo. Thanks for listening.